understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Then invite Kristen Taylor to share with us this morning. Kristen is a member of the teaching team here at Elevation, and we look forward to hearing what you have to say this morning. Thank you, Helen. Good morning, Elevation family. How are you all doing? Good. Thank you, Nadine. Um, so I have the privilege to speak to you today, um, picking up where Brandon left off last week. We're looking at the God of our fathers and mothers. Um, I want us to step back in time this morning to London in the 1700s. I'd like you to imagine that you are living in London at this time. So this is the birth of the Industrial Revolution. And so while you and your family have been farmers in the rural areas, in the countrysides, little by little, your neighbors and you have started to move into the towns and the cities to find work at these new factories that are popping up. The city is noisy, dirty, and overcrowded. Now you're luckier than most because you've been able to find a factory job um, that pays you enough to be able to rent a shack in the slums of London. But most people who arrive in London aren't able to find work and don't have any place to sleep at night and don't know where their next meal is coming from. Because there's no government assistance at this time for the poor and the unemployed, no laws to protect you, your work, you work 14 to 16 hours a day in grueling circumstances. Your health is declining. You eat mostly bread and potatoes, no meat, that's for the landed gentry and the aristocracy. There's also no orphanages to speak of, so children who have no parents often roam the streets or, streets or conscripted into these factories to work as well. When your children get very, very hungry, you might be tempted to steal food to feed them, but if you're caught, you'll be sent to the gallows and executed for the crime of stealing along with someone who's committed the crime of murder. There are no protections for you in this new and strange era of the modern city. So where are the churches during this time? Do they want to reach out and help the poor? Unfortunately, no. The Anglican Church, which is the Church of England during this century, is a firm part of the establishment. It's become very lax during this time, and the bishops and the priests are elected by the government more for their political leanings than for any kind of religious or theological training. To make matters worse, the church is dominated by the same socioeconomic class, the gentry and the aristocracy. Poor people like you are not welcome in the pews. The church is not for you, it's for the government, for the status quo, for keeping things the same, to protect those in power and those who are wealthy. So you're left vulnerable, poor, sick, and broken with no protection from the government and no help from the church. But then you start to hear stories about this man, this crazy man who's holding church services out in the fields, and you are welcome. Your friends tell you that this man is preaching things that will change your life. So you decide to go find this preacher, and you make your way to one of his open field services. 
When you show up, there are 5,000 people there, all gathered out in the open. You never knew that church could happen in the open. You kind of feel like this is a little sacrilegious because the bishops and the priests of the Church of England have made it very clear that only spiritual and holy things happen inside their beautiful cathedrals. You wonder if it's a sin, actually, to be standing here. Is it insulting to God to try to learn about him in a place that is so ordinary, so common? But you stay because this preacher man starts telling you the most outrageous things, things you've never heard any Christian pastor tell you before. He says things like, God loves you, even you, this poor, broken person that society has thrown aside. He says that God sent his one and only son to die for you, you personally, and that you can feel in your heart, if you open your heart to Jesus, the assurance that you have been forgiven and made new. He says that your heart and your life can be filled with peace despite your circumstances. You find tears streaming down your face, cutting through the dirt and the soot that you haven't been able to wash off for months because there's no running water in your home. Water is hard to find at all. You decide to bring your family to hear this man preach, and he preaches a lot. He preaches every day of the week and five times on Sunday. You hear that this man is offering free medicine, free doctor's appointments, a free surgery, free food, free clothes, and free education at his building called the Foundry in downtown London. And so you and your family start visiting the Foundry regularly to get food, to have your children checked when they are sick, to get new clothes, and to get food. This man is named John Wesley. And he's about to radically change the course of history with his plain and simple approach to the gospel, that Jesus loves you individually, he died for you individually, and he wants to change your life from the inside out. So let's fast forward, let's come back to the future, <clears throat> back to our beautiful sanctuary here in Elevation. And I have a question for you. How many of you in here love the musical Les Mis? Love the book Les Mis? Yes. So Les Mis is set against the backdrop of the French Revolution, right? Um, France was experiencing an industrial revolution much like England at the time. The slums were overrun by poor workers who finally got so disillusioned and angry that they led a violent revolt against the French aristocracy. Well, England had exactly the same circumstances as France, an industrial revolution, the birth of a modern city overrun with slums and working poor who were dispossessed and marginalized, and yet, England never had a revolution like France. Why not? Well, a handful of scholars believe it was because of the work of John Wesley and this Methodist movement. He was preaching a gospel that was changing lives, and he and his crew were also engaging in charities and providing for the poor and meeting their needs. He was also a genius organizer. Many people call him the great organizer. Because as people began to join the Methodist movement, and I might add here, John Wesley never called himself a Methodist. He was an Anglican priest till the day he died. His followers formed the denomination that was Methodism. Um, he organized these people into small groups, into societies. He started Sunday school classes all across London and England, and eventually it jumped the Atlantic to North America. These were so small communities where the poor were helping each other and supporting each other. So every dollar Wesley earned, he poured back into his charities to help the poor. 
In fact, his brother and fellow preachers were exasperated by his generosity. They said, John himself is broke and poor because he keeps giving all his money away. So who was John Wesley? What shaped this man to become this sort of force that he was for God in the 1700s? So John Wesley was born in 1703 in Epworth, England. He was the son of Samuel Wesley, who was a rector or a pastor of a church. Um, So he was, his father was an Anglican priest. His mother was Susanna. Susanna and Samuel had 19 children, and Susanna homeschooled all of them. She was very methodical and patient in her training of the kids. She dedicated every night of the week to meeting with one of her children, one at a time, and talking to them individually about the things that were important to them and weighing on their minds. And years later, John Wesley wrote his mother and said, I wish we could have our Thursday night chats again because I would love to hear your wisdom on this particular issue that I'm dealing with. So clearly she had a deep influence on her children. She also decided to spend Sunday nights teaching her children about spiritual things and the Bible. So she started these weekly Bible lessons. And soon neighbors and friends caught wind of her weekly teaching times and asked if they could come join too. Eventually, she was preaching to between 400 and 500 people a week. That was more people than were coming to her husband's church. So for this reason, because of her loving and methodical nature, the way that she raised her children, her spiritual influence on John, Susanna Wesley is called the mother of Methodism. John is called the father of Methodism, but Susanna is called the mother of Methodism. When John grew and left home, he went to Oxford University, was ordained in the Church of England, and decided to sail to the United States to do missions work in the colonies. Now, on his voyage across the ocean, they hit a storm. Everybody was freaking out on the ship. John was afraid. But he noticed a small band of German Christians who were called Moravians. They were just singing calmly to themselves. John asked them, aren't you afraid? And they said, no, we're not afraid. We know that Jesus has died for us, has saved us. We're not afraid to meet him in heaven. And they said, don't you know Jesus? And John said, yes. But he wondered ever after that what he was missing that the Moravians had. Well, his mission to Georgia was a complete and utter flop. He wouldn't let the colonists drink, and they didn't like that. He wouldn't let them smoke, and they didn't like that. He wouldn't let them own slaves, and they didn't like that. So they chased him out of town, and two years later, he sailed back to England, defeated and broken. And he couldn't shake this feeling that somehow he had missed the mark. He kept thinking of his experience with Moravians, and he wrote on his journey home, I went to save the souls of the colonists, but who will save my soul? So meanwhile, back in London, John decided to throw his law in with Moravians. Even though he was an evangelical priest himself, he started visiting the Moravians' church services. And one night during one of these services, John had a quiet but life-changing experience. The Moravian pastor was reading Martin Luther's preface to Romans, where Luther talks about the change that Jesus can work in your heart through faith. And suddenly John felt something shift inside him. He wrote, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. From that moment, John's life was changed forever, and a fire was lit inside of him that propelled him to preach 
this plain and simple approach to the gospel to all of England and soon all of the world. Eventually, this gospel, this plain and simple gospel, jumped the Atlantic Ocean and took root in North America, becoming the largest Protestant denomination here, giving birth to the Methodists, the United Methodists, the Free Methodists, the Wesleyan Church, which is the denomination that I grew up in, the Nazarene Church, which is the denomination my husband grew up in, and the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the AME Church. So about 50 years after John Wesley started preaching and halfway across the world in Philadelphia, an African-American leader and preacher by the name of Richard Allen formed the first, Afri uh, the first denomination, first official denomination in the um, United States, which was the AME Church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Richard Allen had been a slave who was able to buy his freedom, and he went on to minister to other African Americans who were slaves and free. When it came time to start their denomination, they had their choice of any sort of faith tradition they wanted to follow, and they settled on the Methodist tradition. And these are the reasons Allen gives. He says, we were in favor of being attached to the Methodist connection, for I was confident that there was no religious sect or denomination would suit the capacity of the colored people as well as the Methodists, for the plain and simple gospel suits best for any people, for the unlearned can understand, and the learned are sure to understand, and the reason that the Methodists are so successful in the awakening and the conversion of colored people is the plain doctrine and having a good discipline. So here was a community a world away from the slums of London but that in so many ways understood and identified with the poverty and the marginalization that the British poor were facing. The African-American community understood what it meant to be poor, to be used, to be abused, to be cast down, to be second-class citizens in society. And for them, the idea that God would love even them, that Jesus had died on the cross for them, that Jesus not only understood their suffering and pain, but had walked through it too, that was a message that was radical for them. So we have to ask ourselves today, what does this plain and simple gospel mean for us? Let's be honest for a moment in this room. We are more like the landed gentry and the aristocracy of 1700s London than we are the poor who lived in the slums. We're more like the white slave owners than the slaves who gravitated toward John's, John Wesley's approach to the gospel. And we are more like Nicodemus from our scripture reading today than the poor fisherman that Jesus taught. Nicodemus was educated, he was wealthy, he was a Pharisee. Um, and yet, and yet, Jesus still went out of his way to explain the plain and simple gospel to Nicodemus, this educated, wealthy Pharisee. What does he say to Nicodemus? He says, you need to be born again. And I want to wrap up our time together today by looking at this passage of Scripture through the eyes of John Wesley to see if we can help strip away some of the comfort and the wealth and the privilege that so often deadens us to the good news of Jesus. So John Wesley actually preached this passage in a sermon he called The New Birth. And so I'm going to preach his sermon to you in my words. It goes like this. At the beginning of time, God created man and woman in his image. We were created in the image of God. God is love, so we were full of love. God is full of justice and mercy and truth, so we were full of justice and mercy and truth because we were fresh from the hands of our creator. 
But God wasn't going to lobotomize us to believe the truth. That's inconsistent with his own free will. And since we are made in the image of God, we too have free will. So God created Adam and Eve able to stand, but liable to fall. And God said, don't do it. If you fall, you will die. And they fell. They didn't die physically since they went on to live for another 900 years, but they died spiritually. And we can see this spiritual death immediately. As soon as they ate the fruit, as soon as they were deceived by the serpent, they were alienated from God. They forgot God's love and mercy and justice, and they hid themselves away from him and covered themselves up. They had forgotten who God was and who they were to God. And now for the rest of history, we have all been born spiritually dead. Every single one of us who comes into this world is born feeling separated and alienated from God. We forget over and over that God is love, that he is justice and mercy and truth, and we are constantly hiding ourselves from him in one thing after another. So we've lost the knowledge of God, and we can no longer recognize the love of God. That is why Jesus tells Nicodemus that it is so important that he be born again. Now, when a child is in its mother's womb, she has eyes, but she can't really see. He has ears, but he can't really hear. They have lungs, but they don't really breathe. This is what it's like for us in our spiritual birth. This is what Jesus is talking about. Before we're born in the spirit, before we're born in God, we have eyes, but we don't really see. We have ears, but we can't really hear. There's a veil that lies between us and God. But when we're born in the spirit, suddenly all of that changes. Suddenly our eyes are open and we see the light of God in a new way. We see the face of Jesus with more clarity. Our ears are open and we can hear God speaking to our hearts saying, be encouraged, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. And now there's this conversation that's happening between our hearts and God and from there we grow up all the while getting to know God and Jesus better and better. At the end of his sermon on being born again, John Wesley turns out to his listeners and he addresses some of their inner thoughts. He says, you might say, but I'm a good person. I'm kind to my neighbor. I work hard at my job. I'm honest. Isn't that enough? And Wesley says, well, that's great. I wish everyone was as good as you, but you still need to be born again. We might say, but I go to church every week. I volunteer with the poor. I give to charity. Isn't that enough? And Wesley would say, that is fantastic. I wish everyone was like you, but you still need to be born again. We might say, but I read my Bible regularly and I pray. Isn't that enough? And Wesley would say, this is wonderful. I wish everyone did those things, but you still need to be born again. Because the truth is, we don't get to know Jesus by the things that we do. We don't get to have the Spirit of God living in us by the things that we do. We don't get to have our sins forgiven and ourselves reunited with God like it was in the Garden of Eden because of the things that we do. It's grace, 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 grace. We are born again in the Spirit because of God's immeasurable love and grace, and it's free. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we've done to deserve it. It is open for all the taking. So I'll end with Wesley's words. He writes, None of these things will stand in the place of the new birth, no, nor anything under heaven. 
Let this, therefore, if you have not already experienced this inward work of God, be your continual prayer. Lord, add this to all thy blessings. Let me be born again. Deny whatever thou pleasest, but deny not this. Let me be born from above. Take away whatsoever seemeth thee good, reputation, fortune, friends, health. Only give me this, to be born of the Spirit, to be received among the children of God. And then let me daily grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I would just pray, Lord, give us the grace to be able to pray this prayer in your name. Amen. Thanks, Kristen. We're going to um, turn our eyes towards communion now. Um, the table has been set, the bread and the, the wine, or in our case, the juice. Um, I just want to repeat the quote that um, Kristen shared in the middle of her sermon um, by John Wesley, where he says, My heart felt strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I want to ask the servers to come forward now if you're serving communion this morning. And no one is getting up. Okay. Who would like to serve communion this morning? Thank you. That's great. Thank you. Communion gives us an opportunity to remember and reflect on the rich reality that Christ has saved us from the law of sin and death. This small meal, the meal itself, is actually a proclamation of the gospel, and it gives us an opportunity to participate physically in that reality in the most ordinary of acts. We're eating and we're drinking. In a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to come forward. You're going to get up and walk and you're going to touch the bread and take the juice, and we're going to participate in a very physical way, and it makes us parties to the transaction that took place on the cross when Jesus died for our sins. I'm going to ask you to come forward, take the, take the elements and take them back um, to your seats with you, and we'll, we'll participate together when everyone has come forward. While you're doing that, um, there should be a, do we have a, a hymn to go up on the screen? No? Oh, okay. We did have. Um, so I'll just read it to you. I was hoping to give you the opportunity to just reflect on it. Um, the language is a little bit archaic, but if you listen, I'll read it, I'll read it a couple of times, and I'll read it slowly, and the words are, are really rich. So this is a, a, John, a hymn by John Wesley. We need not now go up to heaven to bring the long-lost Savior down. Thou art to all already given. Thou dost e'en now thy banquet crown. To every faithful soul appear and show thy real presence here. I'm going to read it one more time, and this sounds like language from my childhood. I'm not used to talking like this anymore. Uh, we, need now, we need not now go up to heaven to bring the long-lost Savior down. Thou art to all already given. Thou dost e'en now, even now, thy banquet crown. To every faithful soul appear and show thy real presence here. So I'm going to ask you to come forward and uh, take
take some, some bread and some juice and return to your seat. If you prefer not to participate in communion this morning, please feel free to stay in your seat. Also, go to 1 Corinthians 11 as we take the bread. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new, co new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. I'll invite you now to... Um, Move out of the sanctuary and into the gym while the conversation will continue over discussion tables. If you um, are so inclined, Patricia Lang will be down the hall in the study um, for prayer. The focus today being on VBS. Go in peace.